Thank you, choir. That was great. I almost wore a white shirt today. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't. It would have ruined things if I would have had to sing with them. Um, I'm going to read from the book of Ezra. So if you will stand and find that, Ezra is right after 2 Chronicles in your Old Testament. Chapter 1, I'm going to read the first four verses, Ezra 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And every survivor, whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a freewill offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And I'll pray. God, I thank you so much again for your word and for the life that you have given us in Christ through simple faith in him. Thank you, God, that we can sing of you and worship you. Lord, we thank you for your word where you want to instruct us and lead us into all that is good and true. And I pray that our hearts would be responsive and yielded, Lord, for you to work in us of your good pleasure. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, as you can see, we're starting Ezra, and my, my plan here is to spend the next few weeks looking at Ezra and Nehemiah. You can't really um, preach on one without preaching on the other. In the Hebrew Bible, they're together as one book, and um, some think that maybe Ezra even wrote Nehemiah. We don't know for sure, but um, that is a possibility. Remarkable books here, um, and it's um, a story, really, of, of Israel getting a do-over. Israel getting a second chance, which is wonderful and, and speaks again to the sovereignty of God and his hand um, over Israel to care for them and protect them. We get do-overs every day by God's grace, every new day. God's mercies are new and his loving kindness never ceases and we can confess our sins and he is faithful and righteous to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But with a nation, that doesn't often happen. I mean, very, very few times in the history of the world where a nation has been essentially wiped out and then has been um, allowed to come back into its existing homeland and start over again. But that's exactly what happens here with Israel. And not only on this occasion, but we know that it's happened a second time for Israel, where in 1948 they came back in the land after again having been dispersed among the nations of the world, but being allowed to come back. So this speaks of God's control and his care over the nation of Israel. And so this story begins with the king of Medo-Persia, Cyrus. And you'll recall that it was the Babylonians that took Israel into captivity, Israel as to the north, the country that was then called Israel was taken into captivity by Assyria, but then Judah to the south was taken in cap into captivity by the Babylonians. And the thing that the Assyrians and the Babylonians had in common was when they, when they conquered a country, they would take most of the inhabitants off the country, the vast majority of them, just make them move. 
and they would relocate them in other places around their empire. And the purpose of that, we think, was to keep them from having national identity and to having a patriotism where they would be more inclined to rebel against the, the new empire. And so the greatest way to stop that is just destroy patriotism, and you destroy patriotism by just by wiping out nations and relocating people all over the planet. And so that's what both Assyria and Babylon did, and it was very effective. But now the Medo-Persian Empire has arisen, and, and Cyrus is the first emperor, the first king of the Medo-Persians. And he was first just part of Persia, and he um, unified Persia and went against the Medes and conquered them and brought them in with him. Instead of just wiping them out, he made them partners. And then um, he um, essentially, and then for a while, Media was bigger than, and stronger than Persia, but then Persia and the Media, and they took it, they took Babylon. Babylon thought they could never be taken, and then they were secure. And, and you remember Nebuchadnezzar walking around on the palace walls at one point and saying, look at all that I've made. And then God causes him to lose his mind and eats grass for a number of years until he gave praise to the Lord. But they say that the city of Babylon was like none other. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. Historians believe that two chariots could pass simultaneously on the city walls on top of them because the walls were so thick and high. So they thought they were impenetrable. Nothing could ever take them. Along came Cyrus. And he goes, well, it's not as hard as they think. And so Cyrus just dammed up the Euphrates River, which ran right under the city walls and watered the city. And so he says, we'll just divert the river. And so he diverted the river. The riverbed went dry. He marched everybody in under the walls. And they took the entire city in just one night. And so it was, um, and then from that point on, he instituted a different program, totally 180 degrees different than what Babylon and Assyria had done. And that was, he said, you can all go home. So all these nations that had been dispersed, he said to all of them, not just to Israel, but to all of them, we know this because we found a clay cylinder called Cyrus's cylinder, and he writes on there how he was allowing all the peoples who had been conquered under the previous empires to return. And he says, all I ask is that you pray to your gods on my behalf. And so he thought that the best way to make um, friends of enemies is to do good to them. And so his, his purpose was to bless and to be good to all the different um, exiles and allow them all to go home. Now, I want to go back before getting into more of the history and details here. It's important, I think, to look at the last part of Second Chronicles, chapter 36, and to see, um, set the stage for just how things have been and why they're even in the situation that they're in. And so in Second Chronicles 36, and I'll pick it up in, in verse 15. And the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God. These would have been the prophets and despised the words of his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people and there was no remedy. So the reason they're dispersed is because God's wrath has come upon them. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, this would have been the Babylonians, and slew their young men with the sword in the house of the sanctuary and had no compassion on the young, on young man or virgin, old man or infirm. He gave them all into his hand. This would have been into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. 
and all the articles of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and his officers, he brought them all to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all of its fortified buildings with fire and destroyed all of its valuable articles. And those who had escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon. Daniel would have been among those. And they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths, all the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until the 70 years were completed. And then verses 22 to 23 are exactly as Ezra wrote in these first four verses that I read. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you, all his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. Many people have observed the strong parallel that exists between this um, release from captivity to the release from captivity that Israel experienced also while under Pharaoh in Egypt. Pharaoh just didn't do it the easy way. He chose the hard way. Cyrus chooses the easy way and just says, God has told me you can go, and he lets them go. Now, I want to just do some more overview here and then get back to some of these details. In the first six chapters of Ezra, there will be a return of almost 50,000 people, and their purpose in those six chapters is to rebuild the temple, and it's going to take a long time. Um, because they're going to meet some opposition. And so they're going to start the, the temple. They just get the foundation laid, and then there's opposition. They have to stop. And it'll be 16 years or more before they, have to, they start again. And so the whole six chapters take 22 years, from when they first got back and started the rebuilding to when the temple is finally reconstructed, 22 years. And then there is a second return under Ezra. But in between, the first return, Zerubbabel is the name of the guy who brought back almost 50,000 people and rebuilds the temple. And then when Ezra comes, the second one, there's a gap of almost 60 years. And in that gap between chapter 6 and chapter 7 of Ezra is where Esther fits in. And so she's never mentioned by Ezra. But that's where you wonder, where does Esther fit in? Because she was the queen of the king of Persia. Um, that's where she falls in, between chapter 6 and chapter 7 of Ezra. There's a 60-year gap there. And then Ezra's going to come. He's a priest. Zerubbabel was of the line of David. So he was a descendant of David, and Ezra is of the, is of the priestly line, a descendant of Aaron and Eleazar and Phinehas and Zadok. And then after Ezra will be another return, a third return under Nehemiah. So there'll be three returns. Zerubbabel, chapters 1 to 6, Ezra, chapters 7 through 10, and then a third return under Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, which corresponds with the three dispersions. Because when Babylon came against Israel, Judah, 
came, it came three different times taking people off the land until Jerusalem on the third occasion was completely destroyed and the temple was burned. And so these events start with Cyrus being king and they will end with the rebuilding of the temple under Darius I being king of Medo-Persia. Haggai and Zechariah will both prophesy um, during this time. And so they were contemporaries with, um, with Zerubbabel um, and the events that are taking place here. There are a number of themes that are, are very dominant in this book, and not the least being the faithfulness of God to honor his word. Jeremiah had prophesied that this captivity would last 70 years. And the reason for the 70 years is what's mentioned in 2 Chronicles, that they, the land was owed its Sabbaths. There's something that we often, I think, overlook when it comes to Israel. And that is that God has made a covenant with Israel that pertains to the land. And, in it, there, and some have described it an actual covenant with the land itself. And so God is faithful to care for the land of Israel. And so Israel had, was supposed to have, the land was supposed to have a year of rest every seven years. Well, there were 490 years in the land, and they never once did that. And so the years have been stacking up. And, and so when you divide it out, there are 70 Sabbath years that the land is owed. And so God said through Jeremiah, your exile will last 70 years so that the land can get what it deserves. And, the, and it will actually be a little bit less than that. Because when, when Cyrus issues his decree to let the people return home, it's a little under the 70 years. But when you calculate, calculate the time that it took to get there and everything, it works out to being almost exactly 70 years. But Jeremiah gave that very precise prophecy, 70 years. Daniel knew about that prophecy. In chapter 9 of his book, Daniel 9, he gets to re reading Jeremiah, and he sees that the 70 years is almost complete. And Daniel would have been in his mid-80s by that time. He was probably 12 to 15 years old when he was taken captive. And now it's coming to the, to, he's in his 80s, and he's reading Jeremiah, and he says it's supposed to be 70 years. And he doesn't get out his party hat, you know, and he doesn't start, you know, um, celebrating he goes, we need to pray. Because he knew that God had a purpose in mind for that 70 years of exile. And it wasn't just for the land, but it was also for the people. And the biggest thing that needed to happen was that Israel needed to repent from its idolatry and come back to God as a pure, holy people. And it's an amazing thing. From the very beginning, when Joshua led the Israelites into Canaan, there was idolatry wholesale in Canaan. But there was also idolatry among the Israelite people. Because when they left Egypt, some of them brought their idols with them. And so there's never been a time when Israel has been totally divested of idolatry. Never a time. And so the early years weren't too bad. Idolatry wasn't wasn't the prominent thing, but it was certainly present and was influencing their culture. David did a great job staying away from idolatry. Saul did as well. But then Solomon became king. And Solomon allowed every one of his foreign wives to build a worship center to her pagan god. 
And so the scripture tells us he filled Jerusalem and the surrounding area with idols. And it'll take over almost 300 years before those idols will begin to be wiped out by another king named Josiah. And yet it was too little too late. And the people's hearts were so um, intertwined with, with idolatry that even when Josiah tried to get rid of all the idols that Solomon had built, 290 years after Solomon had built them, it wasn't enough. And so God said, these people have become so corrupt, so committed to their idolatrous ways, and God called it spiritual adultery, that he says there is no option left than just to kick them off the land because they are no longer good enough to be on this good land. A good land requires good people. And so the primary purpose for the land was to give it its rest. The primary purpose for the people was to cleanse them from their idolatry. And it worked. When Israel comes back into the land, they will never, ever have anything to do with idolatry again. And that is the first time in Israel's history. Even under Joshua, there was idolatry. Under the judges, there was idolatry. Under the, each of the kings, there was idolatry. But when they come back after being 70 years captive, they leave their idols behind. There's so much here that's, that's just fascinating. If you look with me at Isaiah 44, this is one of the most amazing prophecies in all of Scripture, and it pertains to Cyrus. Isaiah 44, and it goes into 45, where God, over a hundred years before Cyrus was even born, mentions him by name and what he's going to do. Isaiah 44, verse 28. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built. And of the temple... Your foundation will be laid. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of his kings, of kings, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hidden wealth of secret places in order that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one, I have also called you by your name. I have given you a title of honor that you have, though you have not known me. This is amazing. 150 to 200 years before Cyrus did what he did, God had prophesied by name that he would allow the people to return and to rebuild Jerusalem. Josephus wrote, the Jewish historian, that Cyrus knew of that prophecy, of Isaiah's prophecy, that it had been read to him, and that he, and it gave greater motivation to him to do what he's doing. And again, he didn't just let Israel return, he let all the peoples return. But I wonder if God didn't prophesy about Cyrus in particular, because the tendency throughout the ages has been to treat Israel worse than all the other nations. And that Cyrus probably needed a little extra push to let Israel go. 
and especially let Israel go. Going back to Ezra chapter 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. God stirred up his spirit. And then verse 2, Cyrus the king says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all these kingdoms. He has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And he says, The people can go. That was not what Pharaoh did. Now, I don't want to go out on too much of a limb here. But if you go with me and look at Exodus chapter 9. where God is rebuking Pharaoh. This is after plague number six and just before plague number seven. Remember, there were ten plagues that God brought against Egypt. And after the tenth plague, Pharaoh finally said, enough is enough, Israel can leave. It took him ten plagues. I mean, Egypt was destroyed. And it wasn't until his own eldest son died that Pharaoh said, Israel can leave. It didn't have to go that way. And this is important because this is this thing of, on the one hand, we see God's um, foreknowledge, predestination. We know that God, who is omnipotent and om omniscient, he knows all things. He sees the beginning from the end. God, the end from the beginning, God knows it all every single day what's going to happen. Nothing takes God by surprise. God raised up Cyrus. But was he a pawn? God stirred his heart. He stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. Does that mean that Cyrus had no will in the matter? I don't think for, so for a minute. I see no contradiction whatsoever between God stirring up someone's spirit and them, they still have complete freedom to resist God or to obey God. And God's still going to have his will done. But it, is, but it will be either in spite of the person or through the person. And that's why I think this is such an interesting contrast between Pharaoh and Cyrus. Because people look at these and say that it was predetermined, it was predestined, they were basically just pawns on a chessboard. I don't see it. That's where Exodus 9 comes in. I lost my place. Exodus 9. But indeed, for this cause, God is speaking to Pharaoh, this cause, or through Moses, I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power, in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. So why did he raise up Pharaoh? So that God's name would be exalted through all the earth. Was God's name exalted through all the earth through Cyrus? Yes. Was God's name exalted through all the earth through Pharaoh? Yes. But it didn't have to go the way that Pharaoh made it go. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And so then God says, you want a hard heart? I'll give you a hard heart. But I'm still going to have my name exalted. And he had complete freedom to choose the hard way or choose the easy way. He chose freely the hard way. And so that's why God says, I raised you up to show all the earth my name and my power. But look at 17. This is kind of, this is a but statement. Still, you exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. So in other words, I didn't raise you up to make life hard for you. 
I didn't raise you up to make you obstinate. I raised you up to, so that my name would be exalted through you. It's still going to be exalted through you no matter what you do. But it doesn't have to be the hard way. I raised you up to exalt my name, but you are, ex- you are what? You are exalting yourself against me. So it wasn't God's wish for Pharaoh to harden his heart. But God worked with it and even hardened his heart because that's what he wanted. God's wish was to use Pharaoh to get Israel out of Egypt. And all Pharaoh had to do when Moses came to him was say, Moses says, thus says the Lord, let my people go. And all Pharaoh had to do was say, I believe that. Why have we got you guys in captivity? Why are you being sitting down here as slaves? This is wrong. He could have done the exact thing that Cyrus did. This has gone on long enough. You're free to go. Would God's name have been exalted? Absolutely, just like God's name is being exalted through Cyrus. Here's the other thing. Not only did God stir up the spirit of Cyrus, but back in Ezra chapter 1, look at verse 5. Then the heads of the father's households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose, even everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. Now that's an interesting verse there. Everyone whose spirit had been, had been stirred up by God. So once again, God's stirring up spirits. But does that mean there is no free will? That they had no choice in the matter? Look at the end of verse 4. And every survivor at whatever place he may live, this is what Cyrus is saying, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with what? A free will offering, which is all through the Old Testament. You freely do this. So in the midst of a passage that is talking about God's sovereignty, God is raising up Cyrus, God prophesied his name hundreds of years before, it even, before he's even born, free, freedom free will. So can God stir up a person's spirit? Yes. Can a person then not resist that stirring? No. People every day, believers and unbelievers alike, are resisting the stirring of God's spirit. This is what Stephen said to the Sanhedrin council just before they stoned him. Remember back in Acts? You stiff-necked people who are constantly resisting the Holy Spirit. How many people did God stir up? Well, everybody who came, everybody who said, I will respond to what Cyrus is inviting us to do, those 49,000 people, they certainly had their spirit stirred. But are they the only ones? Isaiah 48, 20, Isaiah speaking for God, says, Go forth from Babylon, flee from the Chaldeans, declare with the sound of joyful shouting, proclaim this, send it out to the end of the earth, and say, The Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob, speaking of the whole nation. Go forth from Babylon. Was God only speaking to 49,000 people? He's speaking to the entire country. In Jeremiah 50, verse 8, Wander away from the midst of Babylon and go forth from the land of Chaldeans and also like male goats at the head of the flock, flee from the midst of Babylon and each of you save his life. Do not be destroyed in her punishment for this is the Lord's time of vengeance. He is going to render recompense to her. Get out of Babylon, he says to the whole 
nation of Israel. In Jeremiah 29, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to bring you back to this place. Speaking again of the whole nation of Israel. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 1, So it shall be when all these things have come upon you, the dispersions, the captivities, the blessings and the curse which I have set before you, and you shall call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord has God has banished you, and return to the Lord. The whole nation was dispersed, and you shall, the whole nation, return to the Lord your God and obey Him with all your heart and soul, according to all that I command you today, you and your sons. Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity, the whole nation, and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the peoples of the Lord, your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth from the Lord, from there the Lord your God will gather you and from there he will bring you back. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed and you shall possess it and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Moses, all of them saying the day is going to come when God will say to the nation that he dispersed, go home. 49,000 people obeyed. I believe all their hearts were stirred. And not just 49,000, based upon all these other prophecies that were said. And so the rest of the nation, two to three million Jews, scattered all over the Babylonian and now the Medo-Persian Empire. Two to three million Jews. And the vast majority of them said, I kind of like it where I am. They'd gotten very comfortable in Babylon. They'd gotten rich in Babylon. God said to Jeremiah to prophesy and say, when you are dispersed, seek the welfare of the city where you end up. Build homes, marry, have children, do all these things. And they did. But they got way comfortable in Babylon. Many of them. 49,000 didn't. Go with me to Psalms. There's a couple of Psalms here that relate to this. I don't know that they were written um, during this time or, or before. Um, one of them was probably written by Ezra, the other one not. But Psalm 137 was perhaps written by Ezra. Psalm 137, beginning in verse 1. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Upon the willows in the midst of it we hung our harps, for there our captors demanded of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget my, her skill. May my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. Not all people were happy in Babylon, but the vast majority were. Mordecai was one of those people, the uncle of Esther, who chose to stay. Now God used that. But he wasn't supposed to be there. Was not supposed to be in Susa, the capital city of Persia. He was supposed to be in Jerusalem, as all the other Jews were. This all of Israel has been permitted to go back. God wanted all of Israel to go back. 50,000 people, a little shy of that, obeyed. They responded to the stirring of God's heart. 
only those. In Psalm 126, speaks of a restoration from captivity. Psalm 126 says, When the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. But sadly, only 49,000 people have that sentiment. What is God saying in this book of Ezra and in this first part in particular where God is, has supernaturally moved on the heart of Cyrus to even permit this and Cyrus has been obedient to what God is saying? Both predestination and free will without any contradiction, I believe. God is more than able to revitalize a nation. But it has to happen by his power. We all would love to see the United States revitalized. Well, we're not Israel, contrary to what some people think. I had one dear lady one time, she told me one of the proofs that she had that the United States was the new Israel was that the middle three letters of Jerusalem are USA. And she had half a dozen things like that that told her the United States is the new Israel. She was mistaken. But that's not to say that God doesn't deal with all the nations in much the same way. He wants all the nations to repent, to turn from their sin, turn from their idolatry, and to worship him. I don't think he has one, one will for Israel and another will for other nations. Just like I don't think that God has one will for the Christian and another, another will for the non-Christian. One will, one ethic. And God wants all the nations of the earth to honor him and to turn from their idolatry. But ultimately, it's only God who can bring this revitalization to a nation. Many times it does have to come through great hardship, where people say, obviously our way is not working. It's only God who can ultimately bring about a revitalization of worship, which he is also after in these books of Ezra and Nehemiah. It's clear that God is still committed to his covenants that he has made. The Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the line of David is still operational, but also the, what we call the Palestinian covenant or the Deuteronomic covenant of Deuteronomy 28 through 30, the land covenant. God is still committed to it. I don't think that you can understand the history of Israel today apart from that particular covenant, that God is still committed to the land of Israel. Did you know that when Israel was, when, the, when Jerusalem was sacked again in 70 A.D., from that time when Jerusalem was no longer their capital city, Jerusalem has been destroyed, from that time until 1948, so 1878 years, I think it is, no land, no country, during that 1800 years, from, 19, um, from 70 AD to 1948, that territory of Israel essentially sat vacant. 
Only God could do that. I'm not saying nobody lived there. Tens of thousands of people have lived there. But no nation on earth ever claimed any city within the territory of Israel as its capital. No nation, no new nation ever established that territory as its country. Never. We know that, the, that all these successive empires have ruled over that territory. The Greeks did, the Romans did, the Ottoman Empire did, the British did. But nobody ever established Jerusalem or any other city in the territory of Israel as their capital of their country. Never happened. Essentially, for all practical purposes, it's just sat vacant. Until God restored Israel again in 1948. I think it speaks to the covenant that he lays out in Deuteronomy 28 through 30. And that you cannot, as I said, understand Israel's history today apart from that covenant. God is at work still. We see his continued fulfillment of the covenants. We see the power of God's word and the crucial need to obey it in all aspects of life. When Ezra finally will be introduced in chapter 7, if he is nothing, if he is anything, he is a man of God's word, absolutely committed to studying it, teaching it, and obeying it. We see God's power over the nations to restore his people and to keep them. Nine times in this book, God will be referred to as the God of heaven. The God of heaven. Revealing himself on earth through these events that he prophesied and through the lives of holy men. In particular, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. But not those men alone. As verse 5 said, the, the, also the heads of the fathers' households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, more holy men. The application here, I think, is pretty um, strong. And it is not, as I've said, that the United States is Israel. But the application is that what happened with Israel can happen to anybody. And it is God who is to be worshipped in every country. And that God is stirring up men's hearts. I believe that just as Jesus said, we need to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send workers into the harvest. We need to pray that God would stir especially the hearts of men, heads of families, to respond in obedience to God and his word. Cyrus, a pagan, had his heart stirred and responded to that stirring. So many of us as Christians don't respond to the stirring of God. It's an indictment upon us. Just as it is an indictment upon the nation of Israel that out of three million people, only 49,000 respond to the stirring of God. But if there's any one element of society that needs to have their hearts stirred and to respond, it's the head of the households the dads, the husbands. They can't make their families respond, but they 
can themselves. And I think at times, as these fathers would have had to do, you can, I can't imagine the difficulty of what faced them. 900-mile journey from Medo-Persia, from Babylon, all the way back around to Jerusalem would have taken months and would have meant leaving, leaving virtually everything behind and going to a country that was a wasteland. Israel, Jerusalem was just a hilltop of rubble. There was no set economy there to speak of. They had lost all national influence. They would go back to nothing. And they were living comfortable lives in Babylon. That's the problem. God's not calling us as Christians, as the church, to pack up and leave. Don't think he is. But he is saying that our hearts should be removed from Babylon at whatever cost it takes. And it's not easy. It would be like we experienced this past week a little bit. Everything's changed. Everything's upside down. And I'm thinking, how long is this going to last? And it was, what, four days? Five days? It was way too long. I kept waiting for the penguins to walk by outside. Man, I'm telling you, it was so cold. And back up at his hill, we had power all but the half dozen times that they shut it off for 30 minutes at a time. Our lives were easy, comparatively. But for these people to leave Babylon and go to Jerusalem, it's living, leaving a lifestyle where everything was known, everything's comfortable. They'd been there for 70 years. It's home. Their children have been born there now. Their grandchildren are being born there. It's home. And to go to nothing but to go in obedience to God. And I think in every generation, God's calling us the same. We're going to be going up over spring break, some of us to Pennsylvania, and one of the things we're going to do, uh, Lord willing, is to go hang out with the Amish a little bit for one day. And they decided, you know, 200 years ago that, to just stop and not advance any, any longer. That's not what God's calling us to. But he is saying, spiritually, that this constant erosion that we all are so aware of this constant drift, this constant undertow away from the pure and simple devotion to Jesus has got to stop. And we all know in our hearts where that pure and simple devotion to Jesus has been compromised. And God is stirring our hearts. And maybe now, like, hasn't happened in a long time, but he would have us to say, yes, Lord. And whatever it would take to come back to that place of purity and simplicity of devotion to Jesus, to be willing to count that cost, to take up our cross, to deny ourselves, and to follow him. I'll close this in prayer. God, I thank you for the miracle that we have before us of how you not once but twice have brought Israel out of captivity really three times, beginning with the exodus from Egypt. There's been no other nation, God, that has seen your mercies and grace like Israel has. They still are here because of that mercy and grace. 
But Lord, we know it's not just for their sake, but it's for ours as your people. Where our hearts, God, are held too much in bondage to the things of this world. I pray, God, that we would allow you not only to stir our hearts, but that we would pack up and break free by your sovereign power over everything that enchains us and holds us in all that which defiles in our relationship with you. You are the holy God. I pray that we would treat you as holy, as Ezra did, Zerubbabel, Nehemiah, that our own lives would be under that grip, God, of your awesome holiness, and that you would be sanctified as Lord in each of our hearts and minds. I pray, God, that we would lead our families in godliness, in purity, in that simplicity of devotion to Jesus, and that we would not allow the enemy to hold us captive. I thank you, God, for what you're doing in the hearts of many, many people now. It is your sovereign work. And I pray, God, that we would not resist, but that we would humbly yield to you in faith and obedience, that Christ would be magnified in each of us. In Jesus' name, amen.